0: To understand today's guest and our conversation, first, I need you to listen to the voice of Elon Musk. And I'm not saying that I have all the answers here. This is Musk back in April of 2022, when he had just started his quest to take over the company formerly known as Twitter. And he gave this interview with the head of TED Talks, Chris Anderson. Anderson asked how Musk, a self-described free speech absolutist, would handle hate speech on the platform. It won't be perfect, but I think we wanted to really have speeches as free as reasonably possible. And a good sign as to whether there is free speech is, uh, is, is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like.
1: It's damn annoying. That is a sign of a healthy, functioning, uh, free speech situation.
0: And you probably heard a bit about what happened after Elon started running the show. He reportedly brought back accounts that were banned for hate speech that the company allows the spread of tweets containing content that is racist, homophobic, neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic, especially from the new people paying $8 a month for so-called blue check status. And when you hear a news report that explains these things, citing research, it most likely came from Imran Ahmed. And today, we're gonna tell you his story because Elon Musk is suing him and the organization he founded, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Which is
1: an organization that studies hate speech and disinformation online and tries to create costs for the production and distribution of that hate and disinformation to sort of disincentivize its spread.
0: This is the man in the middle of the misinformation wars. We'll talk to him about his twin battles with Elon Musk and House Republicans who accuse him of censorship, how he deals with the growing body of political partisans skeptical of his work, and what it all means for the next few years of addressing hate and conspiracy theories online. I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. Behind every crusade, behind every pursuit of justice, there is an origin story. For Imran Ahmed, it all started in 2016.
1: When I was working in the British Parliament, so I I was actually a special
0: advisor, as they're called, to the shadow foreign secretary. He was working for the Labour Party, which at the time was being accused of serious failings with how they dealt with allegations of anti-Semitism among some members of the party. And
1: we realized that they were being influenced by folks who were infiltrating Facebook groups, who were spreading anti-Semitic lies within there, sort of reshaping, re-socializing the
0: Labour Party. Then came the battle that shook the political landscape of the UK, Brexit.
1: So I was lent out to the guy who was running the campaign for the Labour Party for us to remain in the European Union. And what I was seeing there was a wave of conspiracy theories and hate coming from the other political side, from the right. And that culminated that referendum in, for me anyway, in the assassination of my colleague Joe Cox MP, who was a 35-year-old mother of two. She was... The most brilliant politician I'd met.
0: British Member of Parliament Joe Cox was attacked in her constituency in northern England shortly after noon on Thursday. Local media say a man shot and stabbed her outside a library in Burstall near Leeds where she was meeting local people. So this heartbreaking moment of violence, this is where it started for Imran. I
1: think I'm still grieving. I think I'm still that this the center for countering digital hate is one in one respect an expression of that grief i i mean i could tell you about th- <laughs> the, the time i spent you know talking to my therapist or talking to my family or talking to my to my wife and talking to others and crying and i remember getting into the lift after i knew that uh, the initial reporting was that she'd been shot no one knew that she died but i i'd been told because i was advising the the guy in charge of the campaign the police had told us that she died and i got into the lift and i just sobbed and a guy who was a few floors down from me got into the lift and i don't think he'd ever seen another man sobbing sort of sitting on sitting at the floor on the floor of the lift and he asked me what happened and i said they killed one of us they killed one of us but I didn't know who they were at that time. And I didn't know who was responsible. I don't remember the, the, the immediate days after that. The immediate days after that were, you know, having to work, having to grieve, having to ch- ch- sort through all these emotions and thoughts. And But I hear a person who doesn't stop. Well, no. And, I you know, it, it, it is in my personality. I am the eldest of seven. I grew up in a very poor working class family in the UK. You know, I had to do a lot of parenting of my siblings. And whenever something needed to be done, I'd always go, okay, I'll do it.
0: I'm an oldest too.
1: Right. And you know what it's like, you you have that instinct to, when when everyone's arguing about who's going to go to the shop to buy the cookies, you're like, I'll just do I'll it. I'll get the cookies. I'll, <laughs> I'll go and do it. And so when I saw this problem, I was like, well, look, no one can see what I can, no one can see what I think I can see, which is at that time, in a time when in 2016, if you told people, I think Facebook is partly responsible for what's happened, they'd go, what on earth are you talking about?
0: That's online. It's not the real world. And so, but, you know. I, I, or that it's harmless. Right. I think there's a sense of like, you know, people just sort of chattering online. Online and offline worlds are completely separated And even the minds. idea of trolling, I think people see it as It's just words, and it's actually just trying to get a rise out of you. And if you don't take it seriously, then it won't have effects. Or, which we hear, not anymore, but the idea of Twitter is not real life, right? It was like, just because a thing is happening online doesn't mean it really has impact.
1: But of course, we have these squishy simian brains that can't necessarily distinguish between the fear and the anxiety that we might feel because someone is abusing us and calling us bad names. And, you know, since... In actually during the pandemic, I worked with vaccinologists who were being trolled online. And I remember saying to them, the reason that they're trolling you is not because you're a bad person, they're trolling you because you're a good person and they want you to stop doing what you do. And they would, I remember one in particular burst into tears and said, oh, my God, like, it feels like I'm being given permission to get on with my job, to sort of to to just say to these people, actually, my greatest revenge is to continue doing my job. My greatest, the the, the most effective rebuttal I can think of is to do my job. And, uh, you know. The bad guys know that online environments have an impact on our psychology offline, that they can significantly, they can they can reshape. Shift
0: how we think about things.
1: Shift how we think individually, but also societally as well. That socially it can reshape what we think is important. They can create social proof for fringe ideologies and theories and ideas. They can use terror to try and persuade journalists not to cover certain issues because they just think, well, crumbs, do I really want to be exposed to a nonstop stop month of trolling after this. Right, and or so,
0: doxing or you know, et cetera.
1: And that's where it started. What it started was, well, how are bad actors weaponizing digital environments to create harm in the real world? That's what the project started. And here's the funny thing. In 2016 when I started it, I started working with a social media company. So I knew executives there. And I called them up and I said, hey look, I think something really serious is happening.
0: So you create this Center for Countering Digital Hate. I'm going to ask you something that sounds really simple, but I think I need to hear it out loud. What do you consider online hate? How do you define it? You know,
1: there's there's a temptation sometimes to... To echo the words of a Supreme Court justice who, when asked what what pornography, pornography was well said, I know it when I see it. But what we tend to do is examples is, is show how platforms treat the most extreme forms of hatred. So, for example, organized violent extremist groups who talk about going and causing violence to black people or to Jewish people or to others. We talk about the most extreme types of content, so stuff that glorifies... Hitler and says that we should we should finish the job that he started or that says that gay people should be shot and killed because of who they
0: love. So we and um, we But a- that takes online the form of what? memes
1: jokes
0: j- forums where people are discussing their fantasy, action? So, what are you looking for? There is this, you know, there's this assumption that
1: what we do is we go and look through the dark reaches of the internet. We don't. What we do is we look at, for example, on Twitter or on Facebook. So Twitter and Facebook have rules, right? They have these... Formerly
0: known as Twitter, now known as X. X.
1: They have community standards, and they are the responsibilities. So we all sign up to, to abiding by the community standards. We all sign up to the terms of service when we join these these companies and start posting there. That's our responsibility as users, that we're meant to abide. Abide by those rules. But every responsibility has a reciprocal right attached to it, which is that we expect others to abide by those rules when they engage with us, and we expect someone to
0: enforce those rules. And that's where the failure happens. So, full disclosure we've used research from the center for our um, research on social media and young people and eating disorders. But I've been reminded (laughs) that you and I have technically met before in an interview. What, what, why do you remember it? Because you do a ton of interviews.
1: (laughs) I do, but I remember the interview with you distinctly because it had a real effect. It had a real impact. So at the beginning of the pandemic, right at the beginning, March 2020, we decided to shift all of our work from looking at identity-based hate into COVID-related disinformation. There was a calculation we made that that was going to take more lives, than identity-based hate content, and that we should focus our efforts on protecting life as much as possible. And so we decided to focus on anti- Initially, we looked at COVID disinformation. Then we realized that anti-vaxxers, this organized group that had been around for 20 years, that they were weaponizing those spaces really effectively. And we wrote a series of reports, the anti-vax industry, the anti-vax playbook. And then, most famously, the disinformation dozen, which showed that 12 individuals and their companies were producing two-thirds of the disinformation that was being shared online. And um, that report you decided to talk to us about and the actual I I remember this very distinctly you talked to us some months after the report came out but it was only after I talked to you about it, that it kind of exploded. And very shortly afterwards, the White House was talking about it. And, you know, everyone was talking about it. So in part, thank you. In part, you have well, made my why, life bananas. And
0: That's fair. That's fair. But the reason why I'm asking is because it actually shows the power and the relationship between what the center does and the media. Sure. Right. So I didn't go into that conversation looking to do that, but the amplification of something coming from a mainstream news organization also adds a kind of legitimacy to the work and what you do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm and there's pros and cons to that.
1: I think one of the things about working with the mainstream media as well is that no one will ever give no one will ever give your work a more thorough check, a more thorough going through it, working out if it's legitimate, um, a rigorous shakedown of whether or not you're doing an effective job than when you brief the media. And you know, I learned a lot of lessons from my time in politics. The first lesson being, never lie to a journalist. Second lesson being, if you provide bad data to a journalist once, they will never ever talk to you again. And I think one of the things that I'm so proud of is that CCDH has maintained a reputation amongst the journalists that we talk to from NPR through to Fox of, at the very least, you can cite our research and our findings, and you ain't going to have to correct that later on.
0: Does what you're doing actually work? Like, you put all the information out there, but it, like, it's not, does it really dissuade the people you consider bad actors? And does it actually affect, and I ask this of myself as a journalist, does it actually mean anything to the public when that information reaches them?
1: I mean, in one respect, what we haven't talked about is the actual, the, the, the structure of our organization is to try and create costs for the production and distribution of hate and disinformation. And we are in, you know, we've spoken a lot about the emotional journey of, of CCDH and some of the, the philosophical aspects of it, but actually in at its core, what we are is a market solution to a market and regulatory failure. That the production and distribution of hate and disinformation are profitable and that's the problem that social media is creating and
0: you want to make it not profitable
1: and so h- how do you create costs so for example for
0: but to come back to it it's what you're saying though it, yeah but does it work so by encouraging, like when you by, counter encouraging, information, by encouraging
1: platforms like by encouraging platforms through the disinformation dozen study to not provide a megaphone to people on that list what we actually did was create costs for them because they were not able to use those platforms anymore
0: but in were order they to, actually able to turn around and say look i'm under attack from the uh, democratic slash counter information censorship but you're regime. talking to your own
1: audience and this is a political question of like if you're talking to your own audience saying you know you're essentially left in your tiny little echo chamber complaining about censorship. But we also know from from one other thing, which is, so the other thing that we know is the lawsuits that have been filed against us and the legal threats that have been made. And when someone files a lawsuit against you, they have to explain what harm has been done to them. We get a lot of complaints from people that by doing our research, which brings to a wider audience and to the public what people are doing, they think in private online on social media and, and the harm that's created as a result. and then there are ramifications for them, whether they be social, economic, or they're deplatformed or whatever else, that they then complain, well, how dare you repeat our words? Well, you shouldn't have said them in the first place. We get a lot of deflection and projection where people are saying, it's you that's the problem. And we're like, no, no, sir, you're the one that said it in the first instance.
0: My guest today is Imran Ahmed, CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Now, when we come back. The lawsuit filed against the center by Elon Musk, and the rising mistrust by some of watchdog groups like his. Remember, at the start of this conversation, we played you a clip of Elon Musk giving his definition of free speech. Well, now he's challenging those who say that Twitter lets its users go too far including the Center for Countering Digital Hate. He's suing CCDH for its reports that reveal an increase in hate speech on Twitter. We spoke with Corp. not on tape, and they claim that CCDH illegally accessed the data for their studies through a third party and, quote, created incomplete and misleading research. The CCDH is actively working against organizations it doesn't agree with by targeting their revenue streams. The statement also reads... Free expression is fundamental to a healthy, functioning global society, and X will continue to stand up for people's rights. It says X is a free public service funded largely by advertisers, and the CCDH misleads advertisers into actions that will hurt the public. All right, so back to our conversation with Imran Ahmed about how the Center for Countering Digital Hate approaches its work. Let's take an example of
1: what Elon Musk has complained about. What we found was that in the month following his takeover of the platform compared to the year beforehand, that the volume of tweets containing the N word went up by two hundred and two percent.
0: Now, can I the volume I ask of tweets containing the, homophobic the words? The bad N word or the good N word? Like, how do you make those decisions? Well,
1: so the way that we analysed it was that there are there are some people who use that in a reclaimed fa- and African Americans can use it in a reclaimed like fashion, like vernacular. But, but yeah. that would that would form the baseline. That would be the baseline of of its use. So there'll be some people who are using it in a malignant way, some people who are using it in a normal way, but the increase. The sudden increase that's caused by the moment of his takeover cannot be explained by people using that in a reclaimed way. When you consider as well that in the same study, the use of the of, of the most offensive homophobic term, the most offensive misogynist term, the most offensive transphobic term, the anti-Semitic terms all rose in the same instance. And our argument was that's caused by him essentially putting up the bat signal to bad actors to say this is now somewhere where you are safer using te- y- behaving in that kind of way.
0: And not this is now a greater, wider venue for free speech.
1: Hate speech isn't... Hate spe- I mean, it- it's a greater venue for hate speech. Yes, that's what he was saying: was that this is now somewhere where you can freely use hate speech without consequences, and there are very, very few places in society. But you can hear
0: why I'm asking, right? But because very, this, very is, this is this is this is an ongoing, fulsome counter kind of response over the last few years okay, but then, and in the US there is political backing for it meaning the committee on the judiciary in the house led by Jim Jordan you know they're having an active investigation right they've reached out to you guys specifically to say essentially their argument is this machine your center and others is about censorship no no and th- that in particular there's... conservatives bear the brunt of that no, uh,
1: uh... I think that this is a, it's a really bizarre thing to accuse an organisation like CCDH of. What we do is put up a mirror to these platforms. And if they don't like the, the image they see in reflection, if advertisers, if other members of society then say, well, that's a bad thing, we don't want to see more hate speech, then that's not our fault for holding up the mirror. It's their fault for having permitted... the the proliferation of hate speech and everything else you asked me the question earlier on who are you to impose consequences we don't impose the consequences the x-corp lawsuit says we lost tens of millions of dollars in advertising because of your study showing an increase in hate speech we did about 10 studies that showed various types of hate speech over an eight ten month period Um, And it's others that impose those consequences.
0: But the line of questioning I'm putting to you now, you are facing from various other quarters, right? So the U.S. House has reached out to you. You are now facing a lawsuit. What was it like to be served for that lawsuit?
1: The irony is that this has become a conversation in which I feel that the lack of specificity, that it's the diffuseness of the charge. You're a censorship organization. What Jim Jordan's specific charge was, was that we had worked with the Biden administration to censor the disinformation dozen. So his, his argument is that you, in some way, have a relationship with the federal government and that you are part of an apparatus of government. And our argument in response was... We don't have any contracts with the government. We don't have any formal relationship with the government. If they want to read our research and then cite it, what's that to do with... I mean, we can't do anything about that. And, you know, I, I think it's a mistake by Mr. Musk to actually file a lawsuit, because on Twitter he could say, these are a bunch of liars and no one will do anything about it. They do not claim in their lawsuit, in the charges that they've put to us, defamation. So defamation would be where our data was wrong or untrue. What they've claimed is that the mechanisms that we use to take data breach their terms of service. Now, we are going to respond to that and we will vigorously contest it in court and I look forward to doing so. But... The beauty of a lawsuit is it's now going to be tested in the one place where facts really, really, really matter, which is a court. And so these facts are going to be put to a judge, and he's going to have to make or he or she's going to have to make a decision on whether or not their case is true. And so
0: And I, I just look wanna to that. I wanna make sure that let me just read a, a line from it. It it says that your organization basically took things out of context. Uh, intentionally mischaracterizing data in research reports, it prepares to make it appear as if a few specific users, often media organizations and high-profile individuals, are overwhelming social media platforms with content that CCDH seems harmful and then use that contrived narrative to call for companies to stop advertising on X. Well, if
1: you take the emotive language out of it, It's broadly true, isn't it, that what we did was we produced research, which then advertisers read and advertisers thought, crumbs, we don't really want to advertise on a platform that has lots of hate speech on it. And the question is, the the, the irony is that what their problem with us is, is that you use techniques to get that data, which we don't like. Not that the data is untrue. What they seem to be annoyed about is that when we held up a mirror to Twitter, they didn't like the reflection in it. Others didn't like the reflection in it. And Elon Musk, rather than doing what anyone else when they don't like what they see in the mirror, which is to go on a diet or to, you know, comb their hair or, you know, brush their teeth, is he's suing the
0: mirror. I want to ask you what it's like to start to feel this pressure. Political, legal, and I assume personal. Has this not come without cost?
1: I mean, I can't tell you it's scary because it wasn't scary. What it was was about a month before the lawsuit came in, I'd actually met with Linda Iaccarino.
0: And Who is the marketing who's the, executive? Who is now the, the new chief kind of chief executive of at X? And I'd put
1: to her some of the some of the data that we found, and she asked me if I wanted to come in and have a meeting with her one to one in San Francisco. And I said I'll be there in two weeks. I was going to be there in two weeks. And it was while I was in San Francisco that Musk started tweeting, "This guy's a rat, and his organization is evil." Again, I mean, you know. And you t- what
0: was the response after he did that?
1: Some people were abusive, but what I did was I t- I screenshot the the tweets and said, "Look, he keeps keeps calling us evil. If you want to slap back, clap back. Why don't you donate to CCdh?" And you know, Mark Ruffalo and a few other folks decided to go and amplify that. That must have really annoyed him because the next day he then called the chair of my board as though I was a naughty child and he was calling my father to say, you know, you need to tell little Imran to stop playing on my lawn. And the chair of my board said, you can speak to Imran if you want to speak to anyone.
0: What I'm saying is you are now playing an arena of very high stakes with very intense players. People are doubting fundamentally the work of you and other... People? Mis- which people? Oh, uh, I, I would definitely say in the U.S. a good number of Republican voters. The Pew Research... Uh, on that is fairly good. No, doubting our research. No, doubting the research of uh, fact checkers and misinformation researchers in general. So Pew Research, okay, 2020 report, majorities in both major parties believe censorship is likely occurring. But this belief is especially common and growing among Republicans. Nine in 10 Republicans and independents who lean toward the Republican Party say it's at least somewhat likely that social media platforms censor political viewpoints they find objectionable. There is a group of people who find what they consider this a kind of policing
1: if you put it to people that that is policing, then I think they're worried. Well, about I don't it. If think you said them,
0: that, but I'm <laughs> just I, I'm just reading you. You know, from the report, I'm trying to get a sense from you. Do you feel a new kind of outward pressure? No. No. Masu, this is. This is. How, you you think this is just literally one or two or three people? You don't see a broader kind of this is the, political pushback or backlash.
1: This is this is what happens if you are effective. This is the price of success, not of failure. I think there is this assumption that maybe we're doubting ourselves, that we are scared, that we are vulnerable right now, but I don't feel scared or vulnerable. I've, I, I have checked our... I've, I've, I have... Of course, it's natural, it's healthy to doubt yourself all the time. So we've checked our work, we've made sure that we're confident we're about to have that tested in court. We are, of course, really aware of that. But what I am am particularly aware of is that this is an opportunity for us to speak to even more people. So that when people say censorship, or they just shout whatever slogan they've got, on the tip of their tongue, that we can say, well, hold on a second, you're saying censorship. I'm saying we all agree that hate speech is bad. And that if we find that the use of the most extreme anti-black term increases by 202% in the month after he takes over, surely we think that's a bad thing, right? And no one's ever said to me, not Jim Jordan or Elon Musk or Linda Yaccarino or Mark Zuckerberg, that that's not a bad thing. So I, I have... We have a perspective that hate speech is wrong, it's evil, it reshapes our society, its normalisation would be retrograde and detrimental, that it would harm the ability of black people to be able to, for example, tweet online because they just think, well, why would I want to go into an environment where it's just horrible and vicious, where it actually impinges, it reduces the freedom of speech for some people while giving some people the ability to spout hate speech without consequences. And our argument is in every sphere of human interaction, hate speech actually attracts consequences consequences.
0: And so you want to create a similar kind of consequence in the digital space. I
1: think that where there is impunity for hate, hate will breed. And hate is corrosive to our society, to to democracies, and to our ability to have prosperity, inclusivity, all the things that we value. Have a conversation.
0: Have a conversation. What keeps you up at night?
1: What scares me is that there is a closing window. So we've just finished some research which shows that 14 to 17-year-olds, we've polled 1,000 kids, 1,000 adults. We found that the the level of belief of conspiracy theories in this first generation that's been raised on algorithmically ordered short-form video platforms like Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, yeah. YouTube, TikTok Instagram, etc. So 43% of 14 to 17-year-olds said that Jews have a disproportionate control of the economy and of our politics. They had a higher level of belief than adults in nine conspiracy theories that we put to them. About Was this a
0: digital poll or... Uh, phone call survey?
1: It, it was an on, online poll okay. using a panel that's, you know, approved by all the different authorities. So it was a thousand adults, a thousand children, robust sample sizes done by Servation, a respectable polling company that was just featured in uh, in the press a couple of days ago. And that research shows that young people who are, Im- who the, the generation that's grown up immersed in social media has a much higher level of conspiracy belief, that makes me worry that the window for change is closing. Because, you know, with every other type of harm in our society, we always say, well, it's the kids who'll save us. You know, the, the kids, oh, they know what's going on. They'll fix this. But what if social media is so affecting our young people? And every parent knows that it affects their body image, it affects their self-worth, it affects their mental health. But what if we're actually damaging their grip on reality, on any kind of objective truth? What if we're undermining their ability to to participate in democracy? Yeah,
0: political reality. So there's a window.
1: And what scares me is that I will not succeed before that window has closed. Because our democracy is the thing that protects us against everything else I fear about, whether that's recession and economic decline, whether that's climate chaos, whether that is civil war or anything else it's democracy that protects us it's our. It's the strength of our democracy that protects us and the values that underpin it are currently being weakened at a profound level by the way that social media algorithms work the way that they amplify the hateful the contentious over the tolerant and build community around these ideas as well and so that's my fear is that we won't be fast enough and you know what really annoys me about this litigation is not actually the litigation itself or Jim Jordan it's not that they are imposing costs on us and it is costing us lots of money we've had to raise money and we're still trying to raise money on our website right now for these cases because they're expensive it's that they actually take away from my time and i know that i have a job to do because someone someone needs to speak up For the majority of Americans, who yes, many of them may worry about censorship and freedom of speech, it's the most profound and fundamental of value in democracies. And I come from a liberal democracy too, from the United Kingdom, one that's very similar in that respect to the United States. But more fundamentally than that, they worry about the impact of social media on their kids' psychology because they see it every day on their ability, on their families, on their communities, on the nation, on democracy. And we've seen those all challenged in recent years. We've seen them all shaken.
0: There are, as you mentioned, stories that I sometimes I'm pretty nervous to wade into because of the cost, so to speak. Black woman journalist, it's going to cost to wade into some things. Um, For you personally, what kind of toll is this all taking?
1: Two things have really affected my life. So I'm 44 years old. I was born and I never, I didn't grow up in the Cold War, not really. I felt safe, I felt no exogenous threat, there was no outside threat that could harm me. Until 9-11, when I was working at Merrill Lynch, I was, I was an investment banker. Um, and 9-11 happened and suddenly the world felt scary. And I actually quit everything, I went back to college, I studied politics at Cambridge straight after that. And that was the one thing that made me, th- you know, and I realized who I was as a human being. I was someone who, when I saw fear, wanted to confront it. I wanted to deal with it. The second thing that really changed me was the murder of my colleague. And the work that we've done since then, I think... I, the problem is that when when I start getting upset right at the beginning of an interview, it really affects my ability to think for the rest of it. And talking about my colleague, and it just... I mean, you could see me in the studio and my eyes were filling up. And so I'm still a bit shaken uh, from talking about That's Joe. That's
0: interesting because you you have talked about it publicly a lot.
1: I cry every time. Every single time. There's two things in the world that make me cry. Talking about Joe and Paddington, the movie.
0: Because I... he's just a little bear that wants a home. I know, I know. See, you're, you're good at plowing through. That's what I hear, right? Somebody who just, you know... Just get on with
1: it. Come on, on, like, someone's got to do it. You know, um, my...
0: And I wouldn't have known you were upset, really. <laughs>
1: I, I have good resting, calm face. Resting
0: smile face. Let me ask it a different way. Yeah. Um, to do the work of bean counting humanity's most toxic... <laughs> comments and and um, ideas seems hard and stressful. And who are you? What do you need to do to release that at the end of the day? So
1: that's the irony is that for me to be able to release at the end of the day, I need to have done something to confront the things that scare me. I had one spiritual moment in my life. I'm not a religious person. I'm not a spiritual person. But I had one moment where I was in a senator's office and I saw he had that quote from Martin Luther King, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And I'm a scientist by training. And so I kind of went, well, nothing bends towards justice without a force. You need a force. And in that moment, I suddenly saw this arc and I saw hands on that arc pushing it towards justice. And I saw my own hands and mine were pushing one was pushing towards and one was pushing against and i thought about my behavior as a human being and about myself as a human being and what i dedicated my life to and i decided in that moment i was going to push towards justice with both hands in everything i do and i think that by doing that by fulfilling that sort of that moment of clarity i have given myself the peace that i need to be able to sleep well at night to be able to love without encumbrance, to be able to live without fear, because I know that whatever happens, I have spent my life trying to make the world a better place. I'm quite confident of that.
0: Imran Ahmed is the CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Now that's it for this episode of The Assignment. If you liked it, please share it with your friends. If you love it, rate it, write a review, it matters. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. Now, this episode was produced by Lori Gallaretta. Our producers are Carla Javier, Isoke Samuel, Jennifer Lai, and Dan Bloom. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. David Schulman did our mixing and sound design, and our technical director is Dan DeZula. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer, and special thanks to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish, and I want to thank you for listening.